0: Well, good, morning. good morning. Good to see you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, we're going to start this new series here, uh, Fighting Fear, in just a moment. Uh, before we do though, I want to take just a moment uh, based on um, my sermon from last week. Last week I preached on the beautiful meaning of baptism and uh, I think it was an enjoyable time overall to be able to just soak in the beautiful uh, just goodness of the gospel. That's a lot of what we focused on. But uh, that said, I, I wanted to apologize for something because I, um, I was a bit dismissive in my tone and uh, just, I think, in a little bit of my attitude, particularly towards uh, folks that come from a more infant baptism background and tradition. Um, that wasn't a meaningful thing for me in my life, but that doesn't mean it's not a meaningful thing for a number of people that come from that tradition. And a number of you in this church, as well as people outside of our church that I really greatly respect that hold to an infant baptism position, theologically and historically, um, I, I feel like I was just a bit too dismissive with that. I think it's possible to have convictions and yet do it without being dismissive, and, I, and yet I don't feel like I did that well last week. So I want to apologize, and I want to ask for your forgiveness. And uh, anyway, so I hope you'll forgive me. And uh, if you want to, you can later if you want to tell me about it. But man, um, <laughs> yeah, It's an odd thing to do publicly, but, but I, I really do, I want to do a better job of modeling the kind of how we can have real differences yet in a better tone and, and especially last Sunday morning, I didn't feel like I did that well. So anyway, all right, you're welcome. Um, all right, well, let's get into this, uh, this new series that we're starting. Um, the way we do our series here at Redemption is that 80 to 90% of the time uh, we do series where we're going through a book of the Bible and we're just kind of teaching it through uh, verse by verse or chapter by chapter, that sort of thing. When we do that, all 10 congregations do it together, but there are these moments where we'll have uh, usually a shorter window uh, where we can kind of pick and choose based on topics or themes, uh, do a kind of systematic theology study. That's a, just a big way of saying pick a topic uh, and look at what the Bible says about it in a bunch of different places. And so a few months ago, we knew that we were going to have this window before Easter to be able to pick a topic and pick a theme and going, well, what would be something that would be something that, that Gateway needs to hear? So not necessarily something Alhambra needs or Redemption Arcadia or Redemption Flagstaff. What, what's something that Redemption Gateway Needs And I had a few different ideas, and I went to our pastors and kind of bounced around some of the ideas, and what it ended up morphing into was a discussion about this series. We want to spend the next three weeks talking about how to fight fear. And the reason for that is that we are all afraid. Fear is this dominant emotion that it seems in our culture at large and it's something that as we reflect on it as pastors, we're not immune from it. I don't know that the people of Gateway are more afraid than everyone else. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is as we just kind of take the the pulse of our congregation. We just go, you know what? We, we could use a little bit of time focused on how to fight some of the fear that we have. And the fear is pervasive, right? There's, there's reasons, and, and really good reasons, honestly, to be afraid. There are public reasons to be afraid, right? If you follow the economy or you look at the housing market, there's some really good reasons to kind of be afraid. If you saw the big short, right, that movie uh, about the housing uh, meltdown from a number of years ago, I've, I've read a number of things that have said, we're getting closer to that kind of thing possibly happening again. I don't know if that's the case, but if it is, that makes me afraid. Some of, some of people are just recovering from what happened in 2008. And to think that could happen again, I mean, that's scary. If you think about race relations in our country, scary, it's, it's fearful. But right? if you're a person of color, any interaction you have with the police is scary in a way that most of us as white people can't understand. And yet that's a very real, difficult, tense thing. And if you're in law enforcement, you're hypersensitive to making sure you try to do things the right way and by the book, and, and as you just sort of zoom back and you look at the culture, you go, this, this is a scary, fearful, like riots can and have and are happening at times. And like, what are we, man, that's hard. You follow politics, good reason to be afraid, right? I mean, think about this, there's, there's a very good chance that your choices for president are gonna be Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. Those are your choices, and so that's scary just in and of itself, that those are your choices. And it's even scarier to me to think, we live in a country where we pick the people we could vote for. So that means those two folks are the, that's what America wants. Right, people say you, you, you get what you deserve as a country when you, you know, vote for me, I mean, it's, it's scary. Um, you think about the Zika virus, right? I don't even really know what that is, but it, I'm scared of it, right? <laughs> and I mean, it's a real, I don't wanna make light of it, it's a real thing, and, and I mean, I, I can't even under, this is what's amazing, there's so many things to be afraid of, you don't even know about all of them, but you know they're scary. Right, and so there's these public reasons to be afraid. Then there's very personal reasons, very private reasons to be afraid too, right? A lot of you are parents and grandparents and and you live with a constant sense of fear. I watch what you post on Facebook, I watch the things that you read in terms of, uh, you know, when you link to different mommy blogs and just different stuff like this, right? I I notice those those things and, and I read some of those things too and I know as a dad, one of the fears I have is, am I gonna really screw up my kids? And the answer is, yes, I'm going to, right? Like a, a mentor once told me, like, you're going to have to someday sit down with your kids and go, I'm sorry. And they'll say, for what? And you just say, everything. <laughs> sorry for everything, right? So, so but, but we live with that kind of a fear. Uh, we live with a fear of, uh, personally, or, or, am I going to get sick? Right, a lot of us have certain diseases that run through our family. We watch other people suffer and die. And it raises a real fear at, what's that going to be for me? I know a lot of people would say, I'm not that afraid of, I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of the process of leading up to death. Like, that sounds really scary. There's other reasons to be afraid. This is a personal one. This is what we'll talk about next week. This will be the, the theme of next week is, is this question. What if people knew the real me? That's scary. Right, not just the me that I kind of present to the world, not the me that my mom thinks I am, not the me that sort of people, but like if people, if people knew the me, me, right, and we all know, you, you all know the real you, I hope, and, and if you do, there's a lot of reason to go, I don't know if I want to get that close to anybody, I don't know how close I am going to get to God, I, this is scary. Another personal fear, this is what we'll talk about in two weeks, relates to money. We, we might just go, is my financial situation ever going to change? My spending habits, my income. Am I ever going to make more money than I make now? Am I ever going to be able to fight off some of this debt? Am I ever going to be able to deal with the worry and the anxiety, and the patterns and the fights that break out in my relationships because of this? And all the expectations? am I ever? Is there ever a light at the end of that? And the, the idea of an economic breakdown—another thing. I mean, this is scary. Do you have you feeling scared yet? We should be scared. And yet there's real answers and and, uh, hope that we have. That's what we're gonna push into this series. As it relates to the money, I just wanna tell you about a class that's coming up in case you haven't heard about it yet. Uh, This is something that we do from time to time and we're gonna do this again after Easter. Uh, Financial Peace University is a tremendous uh, class. David Puckett uh, leads it, but the teaching is really done by Dave Ramsey. We've seen dozens of people in our church literally, you know, pay off tens of thousands of dollars in debt, begin to save, begin to be able to give, begin to be able to experience a level of, of peace, actually, as it relates to money. And so know that that class is coming up. We would love for you to do it. Um, there's some cost involved. If that's an obstacle, make sure you talk to us. Uh, we really would love as many people as possible to be able to take this class. Uh, it'll bless you in tremendous ways. So, so that's coming. So we're afraid. And that's what we're gonna focus on. How did we get here? How did we get so afraid? Why are we so afraid? Well, Martin Luther King Jr. provides, I think, a really interesting and timely answer considering how long ago he said this. He says this, there is so much frustration in the world because we have relied on gods rather than God. Think about that for a moment. Think about that especially in light of we just studied the book of Judges where they constantly went back to other gods Right? There's so much frustration, there's so much anger, there's so much fear, why? Because we've relied, we've trusted on gods rather than God. He gives some examples. He says, we have genuflected, I'm not smart enough to know what that is, so I looked that up, that means to bow down before or to kneel before. We have genuflected before the God of science only to find that it has given us the atomic bomb, producing fears and anxieties that science can never mitigate. We have worshipped the God of pleasure, only to realize thrills play out and sensations are short-lived. We have bowed before the God of money, only to learn that there are such things as love and friendship that money can't buy. And that in a world of possible depression, stock market crashes, and bad business investments, money is a rather uncertain deity. These transitory gods are not able to save us or bring bring happiness to the human heart. That's exactly right, isn't it? And so a lot of why we have been afraid, a lot of why we are afraid, is because we've lost our focus on God. And so that's what we're gonna do in this series, is we're gonna uh, take this week and the next two and really look at some some areas of fear and say, how does God actually give us the answer? The answer to all of those things that we've talked about is not to say, hey, 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 it's not scary. Because it is. It is scary to think of an economic meltdown. It is scary to think about a future president. It is scary to think about your personal health or your financial situation. Those things really are scary. So to just say, hey, it's not scary, stop being scared, that doesn't help. What we have to do instead is to go, look at God who's bigger than your fears. Look at God. Look at who he is. Look at what his character is. Who is God? And Look, therefore, at what he's done in history, right? If you want to know God, you don't just look at him in some sort of abstract way. You look at what has he done in history to prove that he can be trusted, right? If you want to get to know my wife, my wife is Molly. If you said, hey, um, tell me, what's your wife like? And and you go, I want to get to know her. And I said, well, she's about 5'10", light brown hair. Um, She's a mom. She's good at math. Do you feel like you're getting to know her? No, because it's this abstract thing. I, I don't, if you want to really know what Molly is, you kind of need to hear her story. You kind of need to hear about her life. You go, okay, she's born in Toledo, and she's the oldest of five kids, and uh, it's a really fun and athletic family, and she's very close to them, and she loves being a mom, and here's what she likes to do with our kids. and right, We could kind of tell that story. You could get to know her. Well, that's what we're going to try to do a bit today and in these coming weeks is to go, who is God? Not in an abstract way, but what has God done in history? How has God proven himself? And how, if we see, God who's done that in history, can we actually then have the fuel to be able to fight our fears, okay? That's what we're doing. A lot of uh, the the idea there comes from a really wise uh, counselor that some of you know. His name's Dale Thacker. He's part of our pastoral team, and here's what he says. He says, fear is fundamentally about doubting whether God is good. Doesn't that look so official with him up there, too? I mean, isn't that great? Like, he's, he's, he's arrived. He's being quoted. That's true. He said that in one of our pastor's meetings, and I wrote it down. It's absolutely true. Fear is fundamentally about doubting whether God is good. If you're not sure God is good, those circumstances and those fears get real big. But as God's goodness becomes more and more real to your heart, and he gets bigger and bigger, the fears start to seem a little bit more manageable. Fear is fundamentally about doubting whether God is good. So here's what we're going to do today to kind of set up where we're heading for these next few weeks is we're going to look at a passage of scripture in the book of Hebrews. If you have your Bible, uh, grab it uh, again, or if you didn't turn there and go to Hebrews, we're going to look at part of the end of Hebrews 10. We're going to look at chapter 11, and we'll look at the beginning of chapter 12. And Hebrews is a great book to be able to go into because the whole book of Hebrews is written to people who are afraid, these are Christians who have experienced some of the goodness of God, and yet because of persecution and suffering and lots of things that are making them afraid, they're beginning to shrink back, they're beginning to withdraw, they're beginning to think maybe we really just should go back to Judaism. Maybe this Christian, Christianity thing just isn't what we should do. They have some doubts, they have some fears. And the whole book, right, if you just read it through this, this lens of that, that's the theme of the book, it really begins to make uh, quite a bit of sense. And the author of Hebrews, at the end of chapter 10, kind of lets us in to this sort of struggle that they're experiencing. Look at verse 32. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. He says, guys, you had this time where you were enlightened, you saw the truth, you knew who God was, but then it it followed up with suffering. By the way, that's some of your story too, isn't it? You came to Christ, you trusted in him, and things got hard, Things got difficult. You started to go, I don't know if, I don't know if God's really in this. No, he is. And, and all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted, will experience suffering. So here's what it says, verse 33. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He says, you've you've done all these things to to endure suffering and I'm, I'm encouraging you, I'm commending you for it. And then he says this, verse 35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. That could almost be the the theme verse of Hebrews. If you ever study the book of Hebrews, you could think of that that way. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. There's a great reward. And then he quotes an Old Testament passage, and he summarizes it in verse 39, and he says this. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. We are not those who shrink back, we are those who have faith, he says. This is why we're getting the, the concept for this, the, the title of this message of faith versus fear. Is, is We're not those who shrink back, that's fear. We're those who have faith. Now here's what's fascinating about the, the wording of this. Notice he doesn't say don't shrink back and do have faith. He doesn't say that. Why? That's, that's good advice, by the way. That's a good thing to do don't shrink back, do have faith, but he doesn't say it that way. What does he say? He says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith. He's saying it's a statement of fact. It's absolutely true. I don't need to exhort you to do it because it's already true of you. By the fact that you are in Christ you are a person whose identity has changed. You are now a person who doesn't shrink back, but who does live in faith. This is true of you. And yet this, this idea, obviously, or he wouldn't write this, needs to be stoked. It needs to be encouraged. So then we get to chapter 11, verse 1. And in chapter 11, verse 1, he gives a very interesting definition of faith. All right? We're going to talk here throughout this message about what is faith. And, and uh, I don't know what you kind of uses as a working definition of faith? Is it hope? Uh, Belief? Um, Is it kind of a wish? Right? If I just sort of wished better, how do you think of faith? Well, he gives a definition, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Those are two statements that say basically the same thing. The assurance of things that hoped for. Assurance there is the idea of a confidence. It's a a strong confidence. It's an assurance. It's a conviction. It's an assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There are things by faith that we haven't seen. Things coming, things that have happened in the past, things that we read in God's story, that we go, I haven't seen that. I didn't see Christ come. I didn't see Christ live. I didn't see Christ die. I didn't see Christ rise. I haven't seen Christ come back. So I haven't seen those things, but faith says, I am confident that they're true. I'm confident that they've happened. I'm confident that they will happen. When God says, that nothing will separate me from the love of Jesus, I confidently believe that, I embrace that promise. When God says he will finish the good work that he began in me, I am confident that that's true, even though I haven't seen it happen. When I realize that I'm suffering and I read in Romans where it says that God works all things to good, for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, I haven't seen all things work out yet but I'm confident that it will, that's faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And the author of Hebrews says, we are people of faith. We're not people who shrink back. We're people who have faith. Then, the rest of chapter 11, is basically him describing the story of the Old Testament, describing God's act throughout the Old Testament, God's act in history, specifically with the example of people who had faith. So in the first part there, He uh, mentions Abel, he mentions Enoch, Uh, we're not going to go in depth through each of these people, we'll stop at a few of them, but he mentions Abel, Enoch, in verse 7 he mentions Noah, and then in verse 8 he brings up Abraham, and let's go ahead and read verse 8, it says by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise. Here's what happens if you're not familiar with the story of Abraham. God shows up to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and says, Abraham, I want you to leave everything that's comfortable. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your land. And I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you later. Right? Some of you have moved across the country, right? And you've, you've left home and you've left family and you've done those things. And you know how scary that was. Imagine now that you're doing the same thing because you've heard a voice of God. And your family's like, really, what did, what did it sound like? Did he have an accent? Like, what do you mean? You heard the voice of God and now you're leaving. And right? I mean, this is a big, courageous thing to do. And it says in verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. See, what Abraham knew was that God was through this promise that he was gonna make him into a great nation and make him into a great land was actually going to, through that, be building a new city, the new kingdom of God through him. And he didn't get to see it in his lifetime, but he trusted God and he acted by faith. Similarly, in verse 11, it mentions Sarah, Abraham's wife. And it says in verse 13, this is interesting. All these people, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So everyone before this, get this, everyone that he's listed has been anticipating there's a new kingdom coming, a kingdom of God, a kingdom that God is building. A new land, a new hope, a new promise. There's a kingdom coming. And yet it says they all died. Having seen it? No. They all died in faith. They all died still hoping, still sure, but yet having not seen it themselves. They all died in faith. They were able to do it, it says, because in the end of verse 13, they saw themselves as strangers and exiles on the earth. Their their home, their ultimate home wasn't here. So their ultimate home was the kingdom of God. So they went, okay, if we suffer a bit, if we hurt a bit, that's okay, this isn't our home. So that's kind of the first uh, folks mentioned in the Old Testament. He continues talking about Abraham in verse 17, and Abraham's son Isaac, and then Jacob, and then uh, Joseph, those descendants. And then it says in verse 23, he brings up Moses. Now, before we read the story of Moses, uh, if, again, if you're not familiar with his story, uh, Moses uh, was born to a Hebrew family uh, during the time when the Hebrews were enslaved in Egypt. And uh, the command had come from Pharaoh to basically do genocide on every male Hebrew baby, okay? So uh, Moses' mother does not obey that command. She keeps the baby alive, even though the law of the land said she needed to kill the baby. She said, no, I'm not going to do that. And what she ends up doing is uh, after he gets old enough that the neighbors are kind of starting to hear him cry and it's kind of dangerous, she makes this basket And she uh, puts him in the Nile River, probably in an area where there's a lot of uh, weeds and things like that, with the hope that somehow he'll get found. And sure enough, that's what happens. He gets found, actually, by Pharaoh's daughter while she's out to bathe and uh, ends up being brought into the household of Pharaoh and raised, really, as an Egyptian, even though he's a Hebrew. So that's Moses' story. And so here's what the author of Hebrews has to say about it. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, when he was grown up, refused Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered, think about this verse, he considered the reproach of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses, in a sense, was willing to endure the reproach, the suffering, the the hardship that comes with trusting Christ, even though Moses had never heard of Jesus Christ. This is a long, long time before Jesus, and yet Moses is fixing in his eyes on a future coming kingdom, and yet he never got to taste it. Not only did Moses not see Jesus in his lifetime, he didn't even get to enter the promised land in his lifetime. It says in verse 29, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea. verse 31, it talks about Rahab. She hid some spies when the people were going into Jericho. And then this is interesting in light of our study of Judges, verse 32 Uh, Some of these characters will sound familiar. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Isn't it interesting uh, that all these folks who we kind of were hard on in the Judges series, they're listed here in the Hall of Faith. Why? Is it because their faith was perfect? Is it because they had no flaws? Is it because of their character and everything was all buttoned up? No. But somehow they had a real trust in God's ability to keep his promises and bring in his kingdom to bear. And so they did amazing things. It says in verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Yeah, right, that's what, right and, and this is where the prosperity preacher stops and says, see, if you just have faith, that's what happens. You can close the mouths of lions. You can say no to your whatever. You have all this power, right? And there's some truth, right? When you experience the power of God in your life and you trust him, sometimes, sometimes you experience this. Sometimes the dead are raised and justice is enforced and great wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. So when you have faith, will your circumstances get better? Maybe. Is that why we have faith? Do we have faith so that our life and our circumstances, our situation will get better? No. But we have faith in the God who is over our circumstances, whether that results in us closing closing the mouth of a lion or being eaten by it. Right? That's not what this is about. This is about trusting, looking, considering, putting our hope in God, who's in charge of all of it, regardless of what happens. And it says this in verse 39, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That word perfect means complete. He says, listen, they, uh, they didn't have it. They didn't receive what was promised. They're on this end and they're looking forward. They're looking ahead. Oh, here's the promises of God. They're pursuing it. They're walking in faith. They're trusting God. And yet they don't get to experience it. Why? It says, since God had provided something better for us. Now we're on the other end. We look back to the promise when the kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus through his life and his death and his resurrection. We look back on it and our faith, our confidence helps make their faith perfect or complete, right? They're looking forward, we're looking back. Here's what's interesting. They're looking forward to something they never experience and doing it boldly, courageously, sometimes even crazy. Confident in God's promises. We're on the other end looking back at the fact that we have a resurrected Savior and we're scared to death. When we that way we're not leaning into who we truly are. Who we truly are are people who don't shrink back but who live by faith. So Light of that, here's what the author of Hebrews says. Here's just how he begins this next part. The the, the beginning of chapter 12, verse one, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. He says, listen, here's, here's what this is. You're a person of faith, not fear. You've seen these examples of this and now the author of Hebrews says, you are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. Who are the witnesses? Well, he's not saying you're surrounded by the watching world. That's not what he means here. He's not saying you're surrounded by angels, though that's true. What he's talking about, who's the cloud of witnesses? It's everyone he talked about in chapter 11. And it's as though all of those people Mabel, and Enoch, and Moses, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Rahab, and all these people are looking in and cheering on the people of God, cheering on the church, saying, come on, you can do it. We stood firm. We didn't even get to experience the promise, but you have, so keep going, keep going, come on. So therefore, how should we, how should we live in light of this reality? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us freak out, whine, gripe, vent our frustration, rant on, on Facebook, get angry, hoard our resources, blame the rich, blame the politicians, blame the teachers, blame the media, blame Wall Street, blame your parents, tax the rich, build a wall, stockpile ammunition, store food, buy gold, play it safe, demand our rights, take back our country, and pray for a rapture so we won't have to suffer. <laughs> Is everyone offended, I hope? That was my goal. (laughs) Right? Think how ridiculous we sound to the cloud of witnesses. I mean, don't you think they're just like, really? Do you know what we endured? And not just the cloud of witnesses mentioned in Hebrews 11, but you have the cloud of witnesses throughout church history. Many people who were Burned alive by Nero or fed to wild beasts in the Colosseum? What about our Christian brothers and sisters around the world today, in Syria or Iraq, or parts of China, or all over the persecuted church? Who, who, who look and listen to us and must just think, really? They they'd hear us pray. God, thanks for today and uh, bless us today. And uh, yeah, I'm traveling, God. Give me some travel mercies. And amen. Listen, those are fine things to pray for. But is that all you ever pray? Is that the kind of beginning, middle, and end of your prayer life? I think the cloud of witnesses would go, Come on. Come on. Don't shrink back. We're people of faith. We're people who have a God that's bigger than all this. Go in, go big, go bold, right? And that's really what the author of Hebrews ends up saying, right? All that stuff that I put up there, that wasn't really what he wrote. So here's what he said. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He says, listen, there's a race, we're in a race, it's an endurance race, run it. In view of this great cloud of witnesses, in view of this real identity you have, run the race and if anything gets in your way, get rid of it. Get rid of the sin that clings so closely, but not just the sin, he says, get rid of the weight. Get rid of the stuff that just slows you down, right? So many times Christians will ask the minimum holiness question. I heard John Piper, a pastor and author, talk about this years ago, and it shaped me so powerfully. He said, Christians ask the minimum holy que- holiness question, which is, is it a sin? Meaning like, if it's not technically a sin, can I get as close to it as possible? Is it a sin? The, the question we should ask is, does it help me run? Does it help me go hard after Jesus? Does it help me love him with all my heart and soul and mind and strength? Does it help me love my neighbor as myself? Does it make my heart bigger for the kingdom of God? Or is it just for me? So get rid of that. right? Some of you, the voices and the influence and the media that you Like the minute you wake up, you are on this website or on Facebook or on this. And those voices just start from the moment you're up. And it's not necessarily sin, it's not necessarily wrong, but is it helping you run? When you watch the debates or you watch the news or you look at this, does it help you run? If it doesn't get, throw it aside, he says. And run with endurance the race set before us. Verse two, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what do we do as we run this race? What do we do as we do, where are our eyes? Are our eyes on ourselves? Oh, I need to be courageous. I need to be strong. No, 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 no. Our eyes are on Jesus, looking to Jesus, it says, focused on Jesus. Why? Because he's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He's the reason we have a hope to look forward to, and he's the one that brought it about. The founder, the perfecter of our faith, and he endured the cross. He brought the kingdom of God to bear through his life and death and resurrection. He endured the cross, and then get this, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is the posture of Jesus? He's seated. Right, he's not pacing. Oh my gosh. Oh man. What are we gonna do? The Zika virus. (laughs) Trump. Sanders. (laughs) Hillary. Cruz. what What do we do? No. He's seated on the throne. And we look to him. When you look to him, and you look at what he's done, then you have strength. That's why he says this, verse three. Consider him, consider Jesus, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. Consider him, think about him, dwell on him, rejoice in him, meditate on Jesus. Think, consider, dwell, look at Jesus, why? Because he endured so much, and he is reigning and ruling over everything. And when you do that, you begin to not be so weary, not so faint-hearted. You don't shrink back. So where are you looking? You have all this fear. You have all these hurts. You have a lot of reasons to be angry and frustrated as you look around at the world. Where are you looking? Look to Jesus. And if we'll look to Jesus, our hope is secure. If we hope in anything else, I don't know that we can bank on it, but we can bank on Jesus. I wanna finish with this quote by Russell Moore. Uh, He wrote a great book called Onward, and here's what he says. He says, I don't accept the narrative of progressive secularization That religion will inevitably decline as humanity evolves toward more and more consistent forms of rationalism, right? That's kind of the general secularization theory is that the world's just getting less and less and less religious and once everybody's enlightened and once everybody has their eyes open to the truth, you know, then they'll kind of walk away from their superstitious religion and, you know, eventually the church is just in a decline and, right? He, He goes, I don't buy that. I don't agree with that. I don't see that that's the case. Here's what he says. As a matter of fact, I think the future of the church is incandescently bright. That's not because of promises made at Independence Hall, but a promise made at Caesarea Philippi. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I believe that promise because I believe the one who spoke those words is alive and moving history toward his reign. Amen. Let's look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the one who builds his church, who's alive and who moves history toward his reign. Lord Jesus, we want to look to you. God, give us the faith in the moments of our uncertainty, in the moments of our doubt, to see you seated on the throne and to look to you and to trust you and to find hope, encouragement, and life there. God, we love you, and we pray in Jesus' great name, amen. Amen.